The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. If you show me your contract, I can tell you how bad the human rights are in your supply chain. So if you're serious about not having human rights risks in your supply chain, you're going to need to change the way you approach your contracts and you approach your business. Lawyers, frankly, have a responsibility to rethink how they approach the negotiation and the preparation of the contract because the implications of things going wrong go far beyond lost money. You know, it actually has human implications. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Hearing. I'm your host, Becky Anderson, and today we are going to be talking to Sarah Dadish and Olivia Wyndham-Stewart of the ABA Model Clauses Project. And what's that? Well, long-time listeners of this show will be very familiar with the idea of using contract clauses to achieve climate goals. Sarah and Olivia have a project to achieve human rights goals using contract clauses. The Hearing. Hello, Sarah. Hello, Olivia. I'm really excited to speak to you today because I know that you have been doing a project um, which I'm intensely interested in. Um, Sarah, do you just very quickly want to explain what the project is? Sure. Um, So for the last couple of years, Olivia and I have been working uh, with a working group put together under the auspices of the American Bar Association's business law section to put together a set of model contract clauses that firms can introduce into their international supply contracts for uh, goods. In particular, we have in mind uh, supply contracts for the manufacturing of goods in order to improve the human rights performance of those contracts and by extension, the human rights performance of supply chains. Amazing. But just so that our listeners are crystal clear, because I know in the UK there's probably people saying, oh, we've got the Modern Slavery Act. Um, What is the problem as it exists now with business as usual in the supply chain around human rights? Well, that's a big question. Uh, So where do we begin thinking specifically about contracts and how contracts impact on human rights? Traditional supply chain contracts tend to place all the responsibility for the human rights performance of the contract. So the fact that there must not be any forced labour, the fact that there is no child labour, that working hours are kept to, etc, etc, onto the supplier. So the traditional contract will usually comprise a system of representations and warranties that the buyer simply presents. So the buyer is normally the more powerful firm in this arrangement, presents to the supplier and asks the supplier to sign and ensure that they are solely responsible for upholding the human rights in supply chains. Now, what normally happens, and we can get into this perhaps in a bit more detail, is that the behaviours and activities of the buyer themselves often contribute to poor human rights outcomes. So it's very unfair, one could say, on the supplier to ask them to simultaneously manage those pressures and uphold the human rights in supply chains. And I suppose when you're talking about pressures, you'd be saying if you are driving prices down as low as they possibly can go and simultaneously asking people to um, uphold human rights, there's immediately a massive conflict there, isn't, isn't there? 
Yes, exactly that. So what we often see is very extreme commercial pressure. Um, so as you say, prices being driven down to completely illogical uh, numbers for what the buyers are ordering. Also, um, difficulties sort of managing the order them the orders themselves. So changing requirements, changing specifications, not communicating clearly. This creates problems for the supplier because the supplier is trying to manage very last minute adaptations to the order, which can then cause delays, which, for example, the supplier may then get penalized for, even though it's really not the supplier's fault. So there are a lot of conflicting things often contained within these contracts. And, and commercially, they do often put suppliers under a lot of pressure. Right. So we, we often see um, commercial pressure uh, slash commercial abuse translate into heightened human rights risks, right, and uh, potentially human rights abuse. That line between commercial abuse and human rights abuse may look pretty clear from far away, but the closer you get to it, the the thinner it becomes. And we see an avenue for contracts to help sort of um, make that a better alignment in between the commercial practices and the sought out human rights outcomes. We, we've seen a lot of contracts where, I mean, Olivia was describing, right, the traditional approach to contracting where the risk is really passed on uh, like a sort of a, a hot potato uh, down the line to, to suppliers, weaker actors in the supply chain. And we um, see those same firms having very uh, robust human rights policies, very robust supplier codes of conduct, very uh, publicly strong commitments to uh, social and environmental performance, but then their contracts really don't support achieving those uh, objectives or implementing those policies. And we sort of describe this phenomenon of the disconnect of the policies and objectives with the contracts as a coherence gap. And that is actually afflicting quite a lot of firms. And it isn't necessarily even about sincerity um, of the firm. Like the firm could be very sincere about its desire to achieve better human rights or indeed environmental outcomes. But if its contracts aren't supporting that, uh, that objective, uh, they, have a, they have a coherence gap problem on their hands that we hope the model contract clauses that we've been working on can help bridge. I think actually what I love about use your, your, your model contract clauses, but the use of contract clauses in these sorts of areas in general, is that it really just shines a very powerful and intensely uncomfortable light on the disconnect, as you say, between pursuing maximisation of profits and the achievement of human rights and environmental goals. Because when you sit down with the contract clauses in front of you and you price them properly, and then you suddenly realise that there is that we are trying to live with these kind of two slightly incompatible ideas in our heads at the same time. Um, and in the absence of legislation and regulation, um, the contract clauses kind of brings out that, that, that really keenly, I think. Yeah, I mean, I used to talk to suppliers a lot in my work. I worked very extensively in production countries and in factories, and I would talk to suppliers about their contracts. And they would often say they're asking us for gold in terms of the human rights standards, and they're paying us not even in bronze. 
So if you want a gold outcome, you have to pay a gold price. If you want a silver outcome, you pay a silver price. You can't expect to pay in sort of not even bronze and then get a gold outcome in terms of human rights. So it's really, really about making sure that the whole relationship can support the outcomes that both the parties say, say they would like to see. So I suppose now is a good time to get into the nitty gritty of how is it that the um, model contract clauses achieve that. Um, Sarah, I don't know if you want to kick off. Sure. Um, so we for, for version 2.0 of the model contract clauses, which is the one that Olivia and I were, were most intensively involved with, um, we took as our starting point um, the UN guiding principles on business and human rights, which really um, are, are, you know, as you know, very widely known. Uh, it is not like, you know, by, by taking as our sort of benchmark uh, the UNGPs, uh, we're, we're not doing anything in and of itself that is extraordinarily revolutionary. Um, but, um, but yeah, so the, the UNGPs um, have a very, are enshrine a very um, clear uh, approach to human rights and supply chains, which is a shared responsibility approach. Like all businesses involved in the supply chain have a responsibility to respect human rights. And they discharge that responsibility by avoiding causing or contributing to adverse human rights impacts. And that piece of the contributing to is really powerful because it massively expands sort of our understanding of responsibility. It's not just the entity or the actor that is like the closest to the harm, uh, potential or actual, that is uh, needing to be taking more responsibility or behaving differently. It's also anybody, any actor in the supply chain that is contributing to the harm, including, for example, through their purchasing practices or through their um, you know, extractive uh, commercial practices and extractive contracting practices. Um, so we take that sort of shared responsibility notion and translate it into contractual obligations. That's really what the MCCs do uh, that, it, that is sort of fundamentally different from how traditional contracts work, right? Traditional contracts are like, uh, you have this responsibility, I have this responsibility. If you don't meet this responsibility, you are the only party that has breached. There's no like sense of like we could have co-breached. There's no sense of like this responsibility is for both of us to perform. Um, and that's actually what you need to achieve better human rights outcomes is for every actor to take the buyer and the supplier, every, both parties in the contract uh, to take responsibility for their share of the cause or contribute uh, uh, puzzle. Uh, so the MCCs, we sort of uh, jokingly say, are like a Google Translate for the UNGPs into a um, set of contractual obligations that uh, become binding, you know, once they're introduced into the contract. And we have a few sort of uh, buckets where that translation is most apparent. Um, and so I can take, if you want, um, the first one, Olivia, I'll do human rights due diligence and then 
you can do um, bioresponsivity. So, so human rights due diligence, uh, we, the first clause of the NCCs is essentially laying out a commitment, an obligation by both buyer and supplier to engage in ongoing human rights due diligence. So it's a very stark move away from the model that Olivia was describing before of having just the supplier represent that it, there is no human rights problems um, and moving to one where both parties are committing to in an ongoing stakeholder uh, focused way to identify any human rights risks present in the supply chain and to take measures to mitigate those risks, to prevent them from graduating into an actual harm. And if something bad happens, human rights the human rights due diligence obligation also commits both parties to participating in providing remedy to the stakeholders um, uh, in proportion to the level of their contribution. Now, does the clause encourage you to spell out the risks that could lead to a harm, almost like a risk register, I suppose, that could lead to a human rights abuse so that you can intervene really early? Well, if we go to the next point, which is about sharing responsibility the buyer sharing responsibility sorry but yes. no no no. i mean it's a great question <laughs> because it does actually lead directly through the clauses if you take a look at the clauses it starts 1.1 is setting out the um, joint obligation to conduct human rights due diligence and to share that responsibility between parties as you move through the clauses we come to 1.3 which is about the buyer's commitment to supporting compliance with the human rights policies that they ask for and within that, we have a commitment to responsible purchasing practices. We have a commitment to provide reasonable assistance to the supplier to uphold the human rights in the supply chain. We have a commitment to provide reasonable pricing so that the supplier can actually uphold the, the health and safety, the working hours, everything that might be required of the supplier in Schedule P, which is essentially the human rights policy. We also have commitments to managing modifications and change orders reasonably, so you're not disrupting the process in a way that would adversely affect human rights. Um, so, so in a sense, we do delineate some of these and articulate some of them specifically. But the MCCs are also designed um, very much as a framework that companies and suppliers can take and adapt perhaps for their industry, for the particular good that they're producing, and really respond to the specifications of that relationship so that they can make sure that they are actually accounting for all the potential things that might happen. We've put a bunch in that we think are particularly important, and they run right through to responsible exit as well, which we have seen in many instances. Get irresponsible exit can have very, very severe human rights repercussions. Um, so yeah, so we've got some kind of hints and tips, uh, if you will, in some of the clauses, uh, but you can definitely go much further or be broader or more narrow uh, on any of those. Just to add a little clarity on the this idea of the Schedule P, <clears throat> that's where like a, the company is really going to specify the human rights standards that it is concerned with based on its own sector, uh, risk exposure, supply chain, etc. So the, the model contract rules themselves are industry agnostic and they're totally modular, right? So you can... You pick and choose which clauses to 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 use, and uh, edit them and adapt them. 
and but the sort of meat of what are the human rights standards that we're pursuing gets set out in this Schedule P, which is we don't the MCCs don't say anything about that. Well, we have guidance. I mean, we, as a as a total toolkit. So the working group has developed a toolkit, essentially, which is the 33 model contract clauses and then guidance on Schedule P. So that's how to develop your human rights policy. Of course, most big companies that we know of have a human rights policy and it's operational and that they have these ideas about the particular human rights they would want in their, uh, to see in their supply chain. But companies might want to draft a new one. They want, might want to draft one more specific to their sector if they're dealing with minerals or if they're dealing with agriculture, very much dependent. And then we also have, in addition to Schedule P, which has historically placed the responsibility on the supplier, we've actually drafted um, something that we refer to as Schedule Q, which is a buyer code. Um, And that's really to introduce this notion that we, the buyer, (laughs) also have responsibilities and things that we should commit to um, as an organization. So it's kind of like the other weight on the seesaw. If on one side we have the policy, but both have committed to uphold it, we also have the weight of responsibility on the buyer as well, which is articulated through our Schedule Q document. And again, is modular, can be adapted, but we like to think of ours as the sort of gold standard uh, for what buyers should commit to. I think that what's slightly blown my mind about this, as someone who's been a commercial contracts lawyer for most of my career, is that it's sort of drummed into us, I think, in the UK jurisdiction, and I've I'm guessing it's probably the same for you, Sarah, in the US, because we share that common law um, element to both our systems. But, but this idea that the contract is totally um, is is prime, it has primacy. Uh, judges in the UK are not supposed to go beyond the contract to look into negotiations to um, interpret what happens in the contract. You're not really supposed to look under unless there's very specific circumstances. You're not supposed to look outside the contract. It, um, in terms of how you would interpret it and things like that. And what that, of course, has done is it's created this little capsule where businesses have come in with this sort of assumption of arm's length negotiations and good intent, encapsulated their um, relationships in these terms, which are all legally binding, in which the contract has primacy and judges won't look beyond the veil of the contract and think about the intent of the parties or unpick commercial relations unless the circumstances are very unusual. Um, and what what you're trying to do, what the model you're trying to do is working within that framework, of course, because that is the legal framework that we're sitting in, but saying, actually, hang on a minute. There is massive disparity of bargaining power between some of these parties, um, particularly in a globalized world. There's, in, you know, so asking somebody for gold standard of human rights, but also completely driving down on price to levels where somebody may not even be making a profit or where they are uh, almost required to um, engage in human rights abuses to fulfill a contract. It's almost saying you can't pretend there's this bubble anymore. There's this veil around the contract that you're not allowed to pierce. We are asking the parties in the contract to rip aside that veil in the writing of it, which of course is totally voluntary. Is that sort of, and, and maybe I'm mischaracterizing it or over dramatizing it. Uh, is, but is that right? Um, yeah, I mean, that question brings up so many uh, topics and subtopics. One um, that I want to sort of pull the, the thread on a little bit is you're totally right. You know, in, in the U.S., we definitely do approach the contract in this sort of contained way. Um, 
but and 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 you know we tend to just approach contracting in a very sort of zero sum way right which is to say the more uh, obligations and risks you take on the fewer i take on the better the more i get the less you get the better right and um that that is you know as lawyers we're trained to do that we're trained to negotiate contracts in this way and we're rewarded for it right like if the more lopsided the contract in favor of our clients uh the better uh this speaks to our skills as as contract lawyers right and so there there's um something very sensible about the way that most supply contracts are drafted the problem is when you contextualize as you said you know you you sort of plug these um zero sum contracts into contexts where there is massive power disparity between the parties and not just that but there are what we can think of as contract stakeholders like workers or the planet that are uh, particularly vulnerable so in those situations your zero sum contract goes from being like you know contracting as usual to being extractive and actually dangerous and in those situations um there are there i think there are good arguments to be made for having a different approach uh by judges <laughs> uh or uh, uh also lawyers frankly have a responsibility to rethink how they approach the negotiation and the preparation of the contract because the implications of things going wrong go far beyond lost money you know it actually has human implications and so um and if it was just sort of us saying this of course you know whatever you could just ignore us but the companies themselves say that they want to achieve these outcomes the companies themselves say that they care about not having sweatshop labor the companies themselves say that they don't want any forced labor in their supply chain so if that's what you're after then you need to upgrade your contracts because as it is the model that we have just isn't fit for purpose yeah i agree with that and i think i've come at this um from a different perspective which is not as a lawyer um because i'm not a lawyer i'm a business and human rights specialist and in that sense more of a sort of practitioner but way before i met sarah and got involved in this work i used to think and say if you show me your contract i can tell you how bad the human rights are in your supply chain so if you're serious about not having human rights risks in your supply chain you're going to need to change the way you approach your contracts and you approach your business because the contracts i had always seen that had been shown to me by suppliers were clearly going to increase the risk of of poor human rights outcomes it was just written on the page there was no way you could implement it it's like somebody gives you a recipe for a lemon cake and you read it and you know you're going to get a lemon cake and somebody's telling you you have to get something completely different and it's like but i can see in the recipe of this contract it's it's a recipe for disastrous human rights outcomes so we need to think about it completely differently and i think these contracts approach that kind of revolutionary approach to risk that we really really need to think about because it's not just about the risk of not making enough money it's about the much broader risks of social and environmental impacts I am going to move on to some other aspects of the MCC that I'm really interested to talk about but you cannot say that Olivia without 
giving us some idea of the ingredients that go into a terribly human rights abusive contract. And the reason I say that is because I imagine most lawyers are sitting there very siloed in their mind uh, you know, like just as Sarah was saying, you know, I'm writing this to get the best outcome for my client. And my client has told me the best outcome is the highest profit margin. This is a zero sum game. I'm going to throw everything I've got at this. And I, I bet, I bet most of them have absolutely no idea that they are writing the ingredients for a horrifically abusive human rights contract out the other side of it. They probably don't, they're probably a massive disconnect, probably don't even know. So like what, it, I don't want to put you on the spot, but what would be your like top two or three red flags that if you saw them in a contract you'd be like you were going to get abuses coming out of this the hearing on the outside you're a lawyer calm and cool but inside there's a passion to perform a drive to be absolutely on your game you prepare hour after hour day after day in the pursuit of excellence relying on superior resources serious preparation and total confidence. That's the advantage we give you. Be your best with Thomson Reuters Practical Law. So what would be your like top two or three red flags that if you saw them in a contract, you'd be like, you were going to get abuses coming out of this? Yeah, I mean, I think we basically have these kind of three buckets, which we tell suppliers and buyers to avoid. And the first one is unilateral representations and warranties on the supply, you know, the supplier has to make representations and warranties that they will be solely responsible for the human rights outcomes. That's never going to work. Um, very any very aggressive commercial terms. I mean, some of the commercial terms that we have seen in supply contracts, including huge penalties for delays, um, huge penalties for breaches, it's just a red flag. Um, so that's another one to be aware of. And then also we can come on to this perhaps, but in traditional contracts, the contract remedies for a human rights harm are designed to flow from the supplier if the supplier is in breach of the contract to the buyer. So the buyer could potentially profit from a human rights harm in their supply chain if they were to you know, implement that. Um, we have completely turned that around because, of course, we believe in line with the UNGPs and the OECD guidance that human rights remediation should come first and that the victims should receive remedy or access to remedy prior to any other party potentially benefiting from this poor outcome. So those are a few of the things to be a bit aware of. And as we increasingly work with um, buyers and suppliers, we can run through contracts and just highlight human rights red flag human rights red flag human rights red flag they're all over it so we really need to think about what suppliers also need to be aware of when they're negotiating contracts so they can ask for better terms and sort of take the flags out of the contract and put something more supportive to their shared ambitions into the contract when you just talk then about remedies, particularly if there is a, a human rights breach and the remedy flows to the company, I think that I had a real kind of lump in my throat at that moment. Not because I've ever drafted something like that, because I haven't, um, but how I, I could imagine a lawyer sitting there going, oh, well, obviously the best way to get somebody to comply with my human rights is to put in the um, potential stick, the potential penalty that will have to be let, pay some money for that if they fail, without ever even thinking that means that we're profiting out of human rights abuses without ever even thinking maybe that money should go 
to remedy the human rights abuses. And I think that's the thing that I'm trying to get to, which is why I love what you're doing. And I think it just peels back the layers of contracting is to say, as lawyers, the unintended consequences of the things we are drafting, even when we think we're drafting them in good faith, I've got to have a penalty in there so that they take this human rights clause seriously without thinking how that stacks up with um, putting all of the duty on the buyer and driving the prices down and giving them penalties for lateness and putting unrealistic timeframes in a contract and all that stuff. How that stacks up to mean that really the buyer in some cases is driving the abuses through the contract and then profiting from them when they happen. Yeah. We have a, we have a clause that actually says specifically neither party shall benefit from uh, a breach of Schedule P, you know, and that, and that, um, uh, it, but we understand how come, as, it's as you say, Becky, you know, we understand how contracts get to this place of being filled with red flags because it's, again, you know, how we're taught to negotiate these things and we, we're not taught to see these connections and part of what we hope our work achieves is helping lawyers make the connections. And one of the, you know, the groups within the firms that are tasked with making these connections, like the sustainability groups or the CSR groups or the ethical uh, trading groups within the, within the um, firm, tend not to be lawyers and tend not to have uh, super great access to the legal teams within the firms. So they see the connections, but they don't have the tools to go uh, talk to the lawyers with. And that's another way that we hope uh, and we are uh, uh, wanting the model contract clauses to be used is to give non-lawyer folks that see these connections uh, the equipment that they need to go to the lawyers and be like, hey guys, here's all these 15 ways that like our contracts are really actually compromising, undermining our human rights objectives rather than helping us achieve them. Yeah, I think one of the most satisfying things about the work has been that appetite from companies and from different departments in companies to take these and work on them together. So we've seen much more cross-pollination within firms, ethical trading teams, getting the legal team on the phone, getting the buyer in the meeting, you know, really bringing people together who have historically been siloed either by accident or intent, because there are obviously some commercial advantages to some of the sort of old forms of contracting, or there have been. But as the risk framework changes, I think the commercial disadvantages, the risk of actually having these human rights in your supply chain will outweigh the potential commercial benefits. So we're really trying to kind of stoke that transition and get those teams in those companies sitting around a table and thinking what's actually realistic in terms of human rights versus or in partnership with commerciality in our in our company. Well, that uh, sort of leads me quite neatly, I suppose, onto what has the reception been like in business to um, the MCC, and what's what's the take up looking like at the moment? Can I can I just add one thing about where Olivia was talking about um, the red flags? Just one little uh, connection that I wanted to draw is that, you know, when you have these red flag terms, let's just call them, um, part of the, the problem is that it creates incentives for the supplier just to sort of tick boxes and be like, yes, I comply with it. I can represent this. And it doesn't actually mean anything. 
<clears throat> so we're just having a representation or a warranty basically of a falsehood. Uh, and, and this generates bad practices. But as well, where you have these sort of punishing penalty provisions or uh, provisions that say there's no right to cure. If there's a breach, we terminate immediately. And by the way, we can sue you up down, up, down and sideways and get all kinds of damages and indemnifications from you, et cetera. Um, that creates an incentive for the supplier to do anything but tell the buyer if a human rights issue arises, right? So they're just going to hide. They're going to conceal. And it makes perfect sense. Why? Because they want to keep the contract because, again, we're in a situation of like intense competition, massive power disparity. That incentivizes a culture of secrecy and non-transparency that actually drives bad um, human rights practices sort of deeper into the shadows of the supply chain where they become even harder to address, right? And even more risky. Um, so no, so that I, I completely agree. I just wanted to, you know, like the red flags, it's, it's not just in and of themselves. It's like the consequences of it create these very perverse incentives um, that, that aggravate human rights risks. You know what, Sarah, I think I'd go further than you. I think I'd actually go further than that. So uh, I'll explain what I mean. So when I was in practice, I regularly dealt with contracts which were absolutely huge. And I don't just mean in value, I mean in physical size. I remember one contract that I worked on where there were 10 binders of a of indexes and appendices to the contract going into details was a cleaning uh, or as a facilities management contract there was a cleaning element to it and it went into such detail as in how many times a week you would um, empty the bins next to the desks on particular floors I mean this was the level of complexity plus everything you've said around you know complying with human rights complying with our ethics policy complying with our sustainability policy oh and by the way you'll do this all for bargain basement price and what that taught me um, was that any time you have a contract of that level of detail, of that level of complexity, it's going to be in breach from day one. Because really what you're asking is not possible. You are asking something impossible. And where you have a situation where if the goods don't arrive on time, you're going to immediately notice that. So that's not somewhere the supplier can hide. But if you don't have people going into factories checking the human rights situation every five minutes, that is where you can hide your breaches. And I think that, so yeah, I was going to say, I would imagine, I think the dirty secret of the world that we run in as commercial contract lawyers is that most contracts are in breach all of the time. It's just whether you've noticed and where the breach is hiding. And what I'm taking from what you're saying is that if you stack your contract in a particular way where the breach will be hiding is in the human rights clauses. And if you stack your contract in a different way using the MCC clauses, then the breaches may be maybe the goods won't be on time, but we will have a reasonable conversation as adults about a reasonable remedy for that, which is not going to drive you to push your, to push your suppliers into human rights abuses. And it's not going to cause us to lose so much money that is untenable for our business. And we've got to meet in the middle somewhere. Yeah, I, th I think that's completely right. I mean, I, I remember a particular point in our consultations because we developed the MCCs in consultation with a wide range of stakeholders where it really dawned upon people who hadn't been so intimately involved in the realities of supply chain, so perhaps the people more on the sort of legal side, that essentially the reps and warranties regime is just certifying deceit from day one. 
because I have certainly never been in a supply chain where there is absolutely nothing wrong. It just doesn't, it's like <laughs> not reality. You know, stuff goes wrong in daily life in everyone's life every day. And humans are going to human. Exactly. And it's how you manage that and how you respond to that and the kind of spirit of the relationship with which you engage with the supplier that can either manage that in a positive way that will have improved human rights outcomes or remedy the, the situation in a positive way, or will drive them yet further into the darkness and, and mean that your company is less and less able to identify what's going wrong and, and ready to address it. So you're completely right. So I, um, I know we don't have a lot of time left, but I did want to get back to my other question of, is anybody using it? What's the take up? What's the response been like? Well, I mean, not surprisingly, w there are lots of different stakeholder groups that we could talk about. But since we don't have very much time, we'll say quickly, not surprisingly, suppliers have an appetite for this. <laughs> um, I'm shocked. Yeah, exactly. Surprise. This is my shocked face. Exactly. It's very it's very shocked for those who, who can't see Becky. It's a very shocked face. Um, <laughs> yes, I mean, suppliers have been dealing with these contracts for decades now and loathe them and have felt a kind of daily burden and brunt from these contracts for many, many years, felt it in an extreme way during covid where many contracts were cancelled with, you know, many contracts were actually cancelled. The, the goods had already been shipped. Buyers said they're just not going to pay for them. Suppliers were left destitute. Workers were thereby left destitute. It had terrible, terrible repercussions. It was a, I used to think at the time and still do, it was the sort of economic equivalent to Rana Plaza, to an industrial accident. The scale of it was so huge. It wasn't as visible, but it was extreme. And... There's been a real appetite since COVID in particular to really change the way business is done and really change the way contracts are done. So we're fortunate in that suppliers have really come together in ways they haven't come together before. Manufacturing associations globally are coming together in ways they haven't come together before. And they want to work closely with us to really, really address some of this and to become more familiar with some of the red flags, to really scope out what's going to work for them, how they can really encourage this, this sort of shared responsibility approach. But also buyers are coming to us, often ethical teams, people who want to bring lawyers in, people who want to bring procurement in, because I think there's a realization that there is this coherence gap between companies who say, we would like to uphold the UNGPs, we would like to really work on due diligence in our supply chain, but then have these legal documents, which completely undermine any commitment they might make to that publicly. So the reception has been very good. It's obviously a new way of approaching contracting. So there is always the risk question, but we're moving into a world of a completely different risk matrix to the one that came before. And I think the contracts anticipate that and will also help bring that new era in uh, in quite a nice way. I don't know, Sarah, do you have anything to add? Because there are also lots of other groups uh, who are interested in contracts. <laughs> um. I mean, I suppose on the on the uptake, I think it. So, so what is different about us from, say, the Chancery Lane project is we don't. Um, we're not going to get companies necessarily saying, "Hey, we adopt the MCCs." We do know that law firms are using them, uh, issuing client alerts around them, advising their their clients that that the MCCs exist. We do know that companies are using them because we talk to them. 
but it's all um, and we're 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 very happy to talk with with companies and lawyers within companies and ethical teams within companies. So anybody listening, if you want to, uh, we we are available for this. Um, this is this is part of our socialization work. Um, also, um, transparency initiatives. So more and more like. Uh, uh, the Fashion Transparency Index, for example, or Know the Chain uh, are initiatives where they're now asking more questions about contracts uh, that are taking the MCCs as a as a point of reference. Um, so there's there's a lot of there's a lot of interest, in, but as as Olivia says, you know, it is kind of a, a paradigm shift, and our sense is that this is the really perfect time to make that paradigm shift because. Um, for a whole bunch of reasons, a like business, there is a business case to be made here, you know, for, for both the efficiency of your supply chains to avoid disruptions, things like this, having better, um, relationships with your, uh, suppliers that are designed also to enable your suppliers to respect their workers, uh, human rights and subcontracted workers human rights is good. It's good for business. Um, but then as well, there is, um, there is a, uh, a case to be made that, uh, this paradigm shift, um, will help with legal compliance and where, and we can make that argument based on a few, you know, points of reference. One is, the emergence of mandatory human rights due diligence legislation coming out of the European Union, which specifically references contracts and contracting in, in several in several places, but also really enshrines that sort of UNGP notion of it's not just the actor that causes, but also the actor that contributes to an adverse impact that will be held responsible. That effectively commissions an adverse impact, albeit hiding behind the um, that bubble of a contract. They're not saying go out and commit human rights abuses, but they're saying go and bring me these goods for this price, which is so low that there is no way that you can do it without committing human rights abuses. Exactly. Yes. So the the, the you know the buyers purchasing practices are a source of like contribution to the adverse human rights impacts. Um, and that's recognized in, in the EU draft directive. Um, so there's a legal compliance case. And lastly, I think there's a very strong sort of reputational case, but also uh, it, it is a business case around ESG. You know, we feel very strongly that if you want to do meaningfully well on ESG factors, if you want to actually perform well on ESG and you want to actually do good human rights due diligence, you need to get your contracts up to speed. You need to enlist them as allies, not uh, as sort of these purely transactional tools that actually undermine uh, your social and environmental objectives. Well, it's like recognize what the contract is really doing. It's either working to support human rights 
or it's working against human rights. But don't pretend that just because you've put a thing in there that says you will do something good on human rights and you'll pay us a bunch of money if you don't hit it, that it's actually working for human rights, because there's a good chance it isn't. Um, I'm afraid I'm going to have to end us there. But thank you so much for coming. I always love talking to you, Sarah and Olivia. It's always kind of blows my mind. And you can expect many emails from me after this, I'm sure, going, I was in the bath and I had this idea. And what do you think? Because I know that's going to happen. Thanks for having us. It was great. Such a pleasure. Thank you. So good. The Hearing. What I found so interesting and I suppose so striking about this episode and the conversation you just heard was the idea that as lawyers, we are not only not putting human rights clauses into contracts, but the clauses we are putting in are actively working against them despite our best intentions. So a huge thank you to my guests, Sarah and Olivia, and thank you for listening. Please like and subscribe if you've enjoyed this content so that you don't miss any episodes in the future. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.